Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the E3 Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to the podcast today. I'm very excited. We have Lloyd Alter on and after having him on uh, the BS and Beer show recently, where we talked about the uh, Healthy Buildings book that we just read, I thought the discussion has to continue and I wanted him to come back on. So you probably know him from Tree Hugger, but Lloyd, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you've been up to? Okay, I'll give a little history that might take up half this show, but um, basically I started many years ago as an architect and I was at the time, my dad was in the shipping container business, so I was interested in shipping container housing back in university 40 years ago and doing all of these things with mobile transportable housing. And uh, when I graduated, when I, I became an architect and went into practice very young, too young, because I didn't really know what I was doing, and uh, did that for 10 years when my biggest client came and asked, do you know anyone who can come and run my this, these development projects? And I'd really had enough of architecture. So I put up my hand and said, yes, me, and went to work for one of the biggest private developers in Toronto. And after five years of that, opened up with a friend with a friend at the time, a development company that was Cohen and Alter, it was called, and did condos in Toronto and some very successful and award-winning buildings. And then had one of those falling outs that happen in development where you sort of well, I sort of got the wrong end of the stick and ended up uh, not being a developer anymore. And that's when I wanted to go back to my roots and work on prefab housing, which I thought was the answer to so many of the problems I had as a developer, you know, trades not showing up and stomping over wet concrete and uh, just terrible working conditions on site. I was became absolutely convinced that prefabrication was the way to go and talked my way into working for the biggest prefab company in Ontario, Canada. And they were a traditional modular company doing traditional homes. And I said, we're going to hire the best architects so that people can get at a great price, great modern architecture. And opened with a splash and was in the New York Times and all this publicity just at the time prefab was booming, you know, when Alison Arieff wrote the prefab book and Dwell was running the Dwell House competition and prefab was everywhere, modern prefab. And my phone was ringing nonstop with from people in the States. I'm in Ontario. We're not licensed to the States. I can't ship to the States. So I was basically running around doing not much in Ontario and decided to start promoting it on online on the internet before the days of blogs, when there were just websites, there was no blogging software at all. But I thought, well, you've got to keep people coming back. So I'm going to write something every day. And in HTML, I was just doing this rolling thing. And before I knew it, I was one of like the biggest bloggers in North America, because there were no bloggers, there wasn't even blogging software. And when blogging software came out, uh, in like about 2003, uh, I started using it. And in 2004, I noticed this little website, Tree Hugger, that had all about green design. And I started sending them things that I'd seen on the internet because I wasn't doing much building. So I was looking at my computer and they said, why are you sending this stuff? Oh, I can't use it in my site because it's corporate. And they said, why don't you write for me? I said, okay. And $10 a post in those days for 30 words. And started writing more and starting writing more. And finally, one day they called up and said, hey, why don't you write for us full time? Because what they were doing was trying to sell the whole company and he had no employees. It was all completely virtual. So he needed somebody. So I said goodbye to the prefab business as doing a couple of nice prefabs, including one that won the top architecture award in all of Canada, the Governor General's Award and got into writing and it just grew and grew and the writing led to teaching and the teaching at Ryerson University where I teach sustainable design and the writing led to a book deal so at the end of in the fall this year my first 
book, uh, Living the 1.5 Degree Lifestyle, is coming out where I talk about all the changes that I've made in my life to burn less than 2.5 tons of carbon dioxide in a year. And uh, that's how I got here. Oh, and I got in the Passive House lecture circuit. So I was going all over talking at Passive Houses and that and about that and green building at green building conferences. So the last 10 years, Tree Huggers opened up all of these doors. And it's really been wonderful after being through my previous eight careers to end up here. But it took all of your previous eight careers to really, you know, land in this, this awesome spot that you're at. And, you know, part of having you on um, for the book discussion was because you've spent so much time, you know, writing, reading, researching and doing all this <laughs> stuff. And so um, one of the questions that we didn't cover in the book or, and one of the things, I mean, the book really did not end up covering healthy homes whatsoever. No, but no. Um, I think most of the people who listen to my podcast and a lot of the people who tune in for BS and beer are in the residential construction world. And so yes, the repeated question that we get asked a lot is, you know, or that we ask each other is how do we market green and healthy homes, you know, especially the healthy homes now with 2020, the year we had in 2020, like how do we market healthy homes? Because we understand the technical aspects of how to build the healthy homes and we might even understand you know how to put those together in in sort of cost effective ways but how do we get over this hump to sell it right so how do we connect to people so that they understand that they don't just want it that they need it well, this is really interesting because, uh, you know, I know we weren't going to be talking about one, the book, but one of the things that troubled me most in the book is that they had no idea what green building actually was. And they kept saying, oh, green building was all about energy. And now the world is all about health where, you know, the green building movement always was concerned with health. It was never just a focus on energy. And it sort of set up this false division of the two. And so, you know, People have it in their heads that green building is about energy. They're not alone, the people in that book. And with energy prices where they are, nobody really cares. There's no way you can sell a house on energy savings because it never pays off. It never works, you know? So you could take, put the money in the bank and save more money and than you would uh, saving on energy in most cases. Maybe in Maine it's different, but in most parts of the country. Um, but you know, back in my prefab salesman days in the uh, after the, you know, in the 2000s, I spent a lot of time on the road. Ontario is a very big place. And I spent a lot of that time listening to tapes from the great salesmen, you know, those salesman motivational tapes, like this one guy, uh, Zig Ziglar. I don't know if you know Zig Ziglar, but he started as a pot and pan salesman door to door and he wrote 20 motivational books. And the thing I learned from him that he kept saying over and over again, and he was the greatest salesman there ever was. And what he said is that people don't buy for logical reasons. They buy for emotional reasons. People are the same the world over. Everybody wants the same thing, to be happy, to be healthy, to be reasonably prosperous and to be secure. So when we go in with a list of, oh, this house is going to save energy, oh, and the particulate level is going to be this, and we, we're not addressing that fundamental need of the what people, the, uh, the emotional connection. Another more recent guy that I followed at the same time, Seth Godin, uh, also made the same point. He said, people rarely buy what they need. They buy what they want. Relying too much on proof distracts you from the real mission, which is emotional connection. So when I go back and look at that and look at this, well, then what is it in a house that people really want? They want to be happy and healthy and comfortable. And so the first message that I've always done when talking about Passive House is talk about the three main things, most important things about Passive House, comfort, comfort, and comfort. I mean, when the walls are as warm as the air, 
when you know how heat moves from your skin to the walls or to the window, it doesn't matter. You can have the smartest thermostat in the world, but if your walls are cold and your windows are cold in the winter, you're going to be cold because that's the physics of how the body works. And so you start convincing people that, you know, being in like an insulating bottle of a super insulated house is primarily about comfort. And then the second thing that comes out of being comfortable is that you get to keep the humidity level much higher than in any normal house in winter in a cold climate like Maine or Canada, where as soon as you go above 30% humidity, you start getting condensation. So people are sitting there, you know, they're uncomfortable and their noses are dry and they're coughing because there's just not enough moisture in the air in their lungs. And we found out in the coronavirus crisis that the virus at low humidity stays floating in the air much, much much longer, that you want to be between that 20 and 40, I mean that 40 and 60%. And you just can't do it in a conventional house with double glazed windows. You've got to have the triple windows. You've got to have the levels of insulation. So this is where you start talking, I think, particularly in winter, particularly in a climate like Maine, about how just the wall, the simple thing of designing a super efficient wall uh, a pretty good wall even, I think, hits those levels of energy efficiency, um, is going to make you comfortable. And that's one, and it's also going to make you healthier. So that's like the first thing that I always did. And then, of course, the immediate corollary, as soon as you're sealing up the house so well to those standards of insulation and air tightness, then you've got to deal with the issue of air quality. And that's where the heat recovery ventilator comes in, delivering you fresh air all the time. And so you go through that and you start with the comp the wall and then you get into the air quality. And then in cities, I start talking about quiet, how important it is for quiet. They're all subjective things. They're not saying how many meters, how many watts per square meter you're going to save. You're saying you're going to be warm, you're going to be cozy, you're going to be comfy, and you're going to be healthy. And you're going to have a really quiet environment where nothing outside is going to bother you. And I used to use the word resilience when talking about these houses are resilient, are good in a crisis. I don't use resilient anymore. I use secure safe and secure because when the temperature goes out when the therm when the power goes out we've no examples from maine in super insulated houses that have stayed warm for a week when the power goes out and they stay cool in summer so instead of resilient use secure instead of you know for the walls just use those warm terms like comfort and security and happy and healthy, I think it makes a huge difference than talking about watts per square meter or whatever other things that we do. There's also the point of luxury, which is another thing when we talk, when, when Zig Ziglar talked about sort of prosperity, feeling prosperous, is that when I've stayed in there's the old line about really wealthy people don't flaunt it. Mike Ingui, I don't know if you watched him in the uh, Passive House Accelerator, uh, but he tells, he's told me how uh, when he has clients, he doesn't even tell them that he's doing Passive House or to any standard like this. He just tells them, I'm going to build you a house that's incredibly quiet and being in New York, and which is really important when you're in Brooklyn, where he works, uh, where the air quality is really good. And guess what? No bugs. Because in fact, you know, in all of these townhouses and these houses, you know, the, the cracks that let the air in let the bugs in. And so he finds that the airtight house is a bug-free house. And in cockroach cities, you know, that makes a really big difference. So um, he uses all these things. And when I was last, when I was in Portugal, I stayed in a passive house apartment for the first time uh, that I'd actually been in one. And, you know, the air feels cleaner. The sound is eerily absent. There's quality to everything. It has a feeling of luxury that you don't get in a normal house. I, I'm sure you've found that in really well-built houses. You know, luxury to me isn't the marble floor or the uh, fancy material. It's like getting in there and saying, this is something that feels different, that feels solid. And I think you get that. So 
I'm getting into the totally subjective things here. And then, of course, you get the whole issue of the coronavirus and suddenly our house has to do something completely different. Or, you know, if you're in California and you're in wildfire fire country now, that we've learned so much about the damaging effects of PM 2.5, uh, the tiny particles that used to be everywhere. We all used to be breathing them. We were swimming in them when people heated their houses with coal and when everybody smoked inside their houses, you know, between the cigarettes and between the coal, we were all just bathing in PM 2.5 and everybody was dying from them. But when we stopped smoking and when we stopped uh, burning coal in the house, suddenly you started seeing a real difference in statistics. And in the last 20 years, they've really determined how harmful and bad these PM 2.5 particles are. So for the first time, we're actually seeing studies that show if you live in a house that is heated by gas, and if you have a gas stove, uh, compare it to people who live in an electric house, suddenly there's demonstrative differences in health quality, like literally 25% more asthma in kids who live in houses with gas stoves and all of these other problems that they're finding out about pollution that we never knew before, simply because we were all breathing the same crappy air. Uh, now you've got real differences from one house to the other. And so it now becomes really important to deliver uh, that we know the difference it makes to deliver a product that does not fill your lungs with PM 2.5. This is why I'm so insane about gas stoves uh, and why I don't believe they should be in houses. I will admit that I have one right upstairs because my wife won't give hers up. And so I at least make sure that the exhaust fan is going all the time and I have my aware air quality monitor and I go in and turn up the exhaust if I see the PM 2.5 going higher. And of course, right behind me in the furnace room there, I've got a gas boiler because when I, even when I renovated the house just a few years ago, I didn't know what I know now about the, the problems that come from burning gas, both in CO2 and O2 and the particulate matter. It's why I've been raging on a completely losing battle about no one should have open kitchens, that you cannot balance the air, you cannot seal, not have this stuff go all over your house uh, when you've got the wide open kitchen. And uh, that is an argument I never win. Everybody loves the open kitchen and nobody wants to give it up, but I, it's I'd a like mistake. To, it's, I'd like to win the argument that they actually just turn on the range vent hood, right? Yes. I mean, half the time we can't even get them to turn on the range vent hood. One, because it's either loud or it's recirculating or they're they just don't um when i when i was doing you know not i know a lot of this stuff and and just like you said what we did five years ago we're not doing now anymore because we know so much more and that's what's really exciting about the building science community is yes it's, it's this constant evolution of learning which is really fun but um you know we didn't know a lot of those things. And so they were putting recirculating hoods and then they we do this BS and beer show with a couple of mechanical guys who are doing, you know, range vent stuff. And I, I said to Travis, I said, did he just say I need to use the range vent hood when I use my toaster? Right. And so it's like, you know, all these things that we just, we didn't know. I mean, we, and I mean, not that it's not a surprise, it's it's not a surprise to me, but, you know, reading the Healthy Buildings book, I don't know if it was a surprise to some people, is how much toxic material is in everyday stuff, like toxic oh, yeah. material in our cookware, toxic material in moisture-resistant drywall, uh, the stain-resistant stuff, how toxic that is, flame well, retardants yes. in clothing, you know, it's just... Air cleaners, the yes, the uh, stuff, dryer sheets, you put those in. I mean, all of this stuff is everywhere. And when you learn about it, and it's, it, it's worse when we're building tight houses. You know, you, it's because, you know, I'm sitting, I'm, I'm surrounded in a house that was built uh, 110 years ago. And it's still, even after all the work I've done, pretty leaky. 
But in a modern house that's built to a proper tightness standard, I mean, if you don't have, if you're not monitoring, if you don't keep that stuff out in the first place, you've got a real problem. And, you know, people, your clients, as you were saying about the exhaust hood, there's a problem with clients and the stuff they bring into the house. When I'm teaching, I always send my, and my students are going out to look in green buildings. I always say, you have to look under the sink and you have to look in the utility cupboards and see what kind of cleaners they use. Because you can have this beautiful green house and healthy building and look in there and they've got the Vim and they've got the high strength and they got the bottle of Javex and all of this stuff. And I said, no, you can't bring that stuff into your building. It's uh, a, a building doesn't end your, the, when you, you hand over the keys to the client. It's a continuing thing. And that's one thing, for instance, the well building system does. It actually comes back and does an audit a year later to make sure you're still doing the right things. But you've raised the, the exhaust hood thing. Um, there's nothing that makes me angrier the, the lack of understanding and the lack of concern that you see someone with a six burner gas grass range on an island with an exhaust hood that you can barely touch and it isn't doing anything. Alex Wilson put a hood over his kitchen range, which was an induction range in his house that he built and they did some tests and you know nothing got up to that hood, nothing at all. And then a lot of passive house people keep using recirculating hoods because having a hole in the wall and all the air going out really knocks their calculations to hell. And um, they say, well, what else are we going to do? But as John Straub, what did John Straub call uh, call recirculating hood? Forehead greasers. You know, they, they do nothing except grease your forehead. And so... I don't think it should be allowed to sell a stove without a matching hood that is basically designed for the right capacity for the output of the stove. I think that they should like be one piece. You know, here's the stove, here's the backsplash, here's the hood. So it's fixed at the right distance because one engineer says it's got to be 30 inches. The other one, the, the art designer wants it at 48 inches above. Um, it's basic physics what happens you've got this much air you need to carry this much and it should be against the wall never on an island but it's the one thing that fashion wins every time even though it's probably something that everybody should think about for all the time but it's always oh those island kitchens look so good and this is such a pretty hood if you go to china where they do so much flash cooking, you know, in the wok, and they just puts out a huge amount of stuff. Uh, never see an open kitchen. They just couldn't. The whole house would just fill up with smoke. Where they want the open kitchen, they actually do plate glass floor to ceiling around the whole thing. So it looks like an open kitchen, but it's not. And we have to start thinking like we're cooking on a wok all the time, you know, that there's that much, that the air has to be measured and controlled, bring in as much as we're putting out through the hood right next to it. And again, I always think they should be in a separate room. I could talk all day about exhaust hoods. No? I know. Couldn't we talk all day about exhaust hoods and, then, and yeah. then some more, right? Because you're like, wait, I need you know even more information. I mean, for us, um, we have a hard time sometimes selling induction, although no one has been sorry after they've gone yes. induction. Nobody has been sorry about it. But yep. at first they're just like, no, I have to have a gas range. And I was like, let's talk about this, right? Because I mean, in the at the end of the day, I can't make you do anything, but I'm gonna hopefully convince you to never do that. Like let's let's not do that at all. And you know, the range vent hood and the makeup air and I'm and People are like, well, but that's a hole in the wall. I'm like, yes, but it's necessary. It's yes, really, really exactly. important. Like, I get it. It's going to be a bit of a penalty. And, you know, hopefully we're going to do it right so that it's not going to clink and clank. And, you know, in some cases you can move the motor so that it's a little bit farther away. So you don't have to hear it quite as loud. And, um, you know, there are some brands that make ones that are better and people don't know anything about noise. Right. So right. It's, 
the same, you know, they, they won't use the bathroom fan because it makes too much noise and they won't use the, the range vent hood because it makes too much noise. And it's like, well, you could have bought a different one that wouldn't make so much noise. Yeah. You know, if you don't have a six burner gas range, you don't need a 1200 CFM, you know, massive kitchen hood either. You know, right. you still need enough to move the air. And I agree. I have always been absolutely against islands. So well, let's go back to the point we were making. I was talking about earlier about selling emotions and feelings. Yes. I mean, I joked about this on the, <clears throat> on the uh, show about, um, the whole question of why is Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop so popular? Why is she making millions? What is she selling that is different? She's selling the emotional story that, you know, you buy this, you're going to be healthier. You're going to be like me or this and that and the other. When you look at the well system, the well people uh, do that standard is got a lot of science behind it. Now it didn't start that way, but uh they also have a whole other division that is selling well real estate. And it's incredibly high end and it's got filtered water and it's got the lighting that all changes her circadian rhythms, uh, which if you've got a window and can see the sun, you don't need. And, <clears throat> you know, it, it's so much of it is if you look at the well real estate, they're getting a huge amount of money for stuff that I think is mostly completely silly. Uh, but they're, it's got the aura of health and it's got the feeling of comfort and it's got that feeling of wealth, the richness of it, which is again, one of those things that Ziegler said and that we have to talk about. And that's where I always get, how do you get to use better materials, you build a smaller building. You take the same money. What did Susan Susanka say in her not so big house? That if you, you'll spend the same money building 25% smaller, but it'll be so much nicer because you have the money to do decent materials. And that's where you get into healthy materials. We say, sorry, there's no vinyl going in this place. There's no plastic going in this place. We're gonna give you real plaster instead of hairy drywall that catches every little thing on the paper. Um, we're gonna give you uh, materials that don't, don't outgas. We're gonna give you sustainably harvested lumber and we're gonna be all electric and no gas. These things all mean that you have to design a smaller, more efficient building to build it in the same budget as the guy who's just cranking up the stick frame thing down the street. And we have this horrible disease in North America, two foot itis, square foot itis, that everybody just looks at the sort of price per square foot and they say, oh, you're so much more money. I say, the square price per square foot is irrelevant. I love it's that square footitis. I think square footage should just go away. I, I tell people all the time. I said the only thing that square footage is good for is uh, for the tax department to decide how much money you owe them. That's what square That's, footage is. <laughs> yes, but uh, it's a disease. Yeah, it is. And um, you don't get that in Europe. You've got people saying, you know, I want the quality. I want this. How much do I need? And building, living in much smaller spaces. And they don't leave the spaces. In North America, you know, you can have another kid. You've got to buy a house with another room uh, and get a bigger space or do this and do that. Whereas if you go and meet someone who lives in a nice part of Paris and uh, a nice part of Rome, they'll say, forget the kids. The apartment's more important. You know, the kid's only here for 20 years. He can have a tiny room. They'll spend $5,000 on a resource folding bed so that his tiny closet of a bedroom serves multiple function. Whereas in North America, say $5,000, I'll go buy a bigger house. Um, it's just a different attitude. Well, I think to you know you see this more in europe because they have more cities and the, the way that it's, it works in public transportation and how they get around and what they do yeah. and walk and everything but i think in cities in general i mean like you look in new york city there are people who live in a shoebox with three roommates yes. right because yes. what's more important to them is to be close to the network and the neighborhood and the experience right so if we don't keep <laughs> giving least it was in 2019 it, it, it was yes. <laughs> yes. It, it will be Again, again, hopefully, uh, 
sooner rather than later. But, you know, they were creating these neighborhoods where, where they wanted to do things not have space and have stuff right right? and so it's like we keep getting bigger houses bigger stuff more stuff more space more stuff more space you know and so um i think what 2020 has taught us is the one thing we actually really really miss is connecting with other people so hopefully that will help us to kind of drive this idea of how much how much space do we need and what does that give us as quality of life right because the quality of that doesn't have anything to do with how much square footage you have. It has to do with how you think and feel in your space, what you want to do. Now, granted, we might not see a total shift in square footage because as the office culture potentially goes away, we do have to create spaces that at least allow us to have workspaces. And the one thing as a work from home already professional, I have another office where I meet with clients and I um, go to once a week, but for the most part, I work in my home office is um, in order to leave work and not be at work all day, it has to have a door where I can close it and just to sort of say, okay, that's work when I'm not in this space, I'm, I'm at home. And that's the only, for me, that's the only downside to work from home is that you really have to carve out a space that you can let go of because the other I don't know if it's like this in Canada, but the U.S. culture is, you know, work, 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 80 hours a week, constantly working, you know, which the European culture, they seem to enjoy the other things in life. At least that's been my traveling experience. I lived in Rome for six months and it, you know, they have times of the day where they're just not working, you know? Well, in the French, you're not in France. You're you're not allowed to turn on your email. They actually disable it at the end of the workday. So, uh, and it's a good approach. But no, the the pandemic. I think one of the permanent things that's going to happen is that there's going to be so much more working from home. not because we want to as employees, but because the employers have found out how much money they can save. You know, they can offload all these leases. Don't think they're doing it for us. Uh, This has been coming. This has been coming for 40 years, since the 60s with the computer, when the whole secretarial pool disappeared and work all changed when everybody started working on the computer. You could see this coming, but management was afraid of it. They didn't want to do it. They thought they'd lose control. It was management by bums in seats, basically. And the whole transformation of this is that they found they actually can manage and they can actually do this without paying all of that incredible real estate and that most of us like it. So what I'm hoping is we're going to see is more people working at home, but also the rebirth and revitalization of the neighborhood. The fact is you're still going to want to get away. People used to take their dry cleaning to the office and do it at lunch, and now you're going to go to your neighborhood. You want to get all the stuff you need there. And I think this is going to be great because it, if people can work close to home or go to co-housing, if co- co-working spaces, if they really don't want to work at home or satellite offices where they break it all up, this will make a huge difference in carbon if we get more people out of cars and don't have to keep expanding highways and parking garages. So yeah, I would love that. Though. I think, and I don't know how you feel, but I wonder if some of these office spaces, right? Those are, they got to do something with these buildings can now become the types of housing that we're also not providing, right? Is like the single family home is great and it might be the dream, but it's not really a solution to the housing issues that we have, right? No, <clears throat> no. and in the 90s, there was a huge amount of uh, uh office building conversion into condos where I am in Toronto. And I think we're going to see a lot of that again. There will be head offices, but they'll be going down for, you know, meetings and for get togethers, just FaceTime with employees, but they might be one day or two day a week. But to have a whole place to work there when you can work at home, but it's going to change the house. Like what we're going to see is, like you say, a little bit of growth in floor area because going to have the end of the open plan. You've got to have a place for you to work, maybe your spouse to work. Uh, I don't know how much more kids are going to be actually working at home, uh, doing work at home. But even before the pandemic, the 
government in the province where I live to save money was talking about, well, we're going to have the kids learn more on their iPads on their own time and maybe spend less time at, uh, at the school. And there was a revolt against this of parents and teachers. And guess what? Because of the pandemic, that's exactly what they're doing. So, you know, I don't think education is going to be the same, even when it's all, uh, all, all not a problem with the pandemic. And I don't think a lot of people are not going to, I think a lot of people are not going to be going back to offices because they don't want to commute and the, and the offices don't want to pay the rents. And this could be a really good thing, especially in yeah. smaller cities. It's been really interesting, too, to see the people who have moved to other locations, too, because they have the flexibility to do that, right? Like, maybe I've moved closer to my parents, or maybe I've moved to a destination town that I always wanted to live in, but I couldn't because of my job. So it's kind of interesting, the the mobilization of where people have gone um, since then as well. Um, but I think there's... I bet Maine is booming, actually. All kinds of people. Maine, oh, I'd love to live in Portland. I'd love to live here. Maine I mean, is, is booming. It? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, Maine and Vermont, I think, are getting hit hard with the uh, the exodus of people from, from major cities saying, we're going to move to more rural communities. We're going to move to Maine. We're going to move to Portland. We're going to move to Burlington. We're going to, you know, move to the country. Um, I think the, the biggest struggle, which probably everybody is seeing, everywhere is whether or not the the wi-fi demand in rural areas can keep up with uh kids schooling from home and people zooming um i previously before this maine is a, already kind of a, a vacation community so a lot of my clients yes. didn't live in maine to begin with so i was already doing zoom meetings and working from home so not a whole lot changed for me so it was a very easy transition in 2020 minus the fact that everybody was so incredibly busy that I worked more <laughs> than I had previously. Um, but it was a pretty easy transition for me. And so people have asked me, you know, like, well, what do you do? You know, how does it work working from home? Do you have a space? And, and so that's been interesting. But I've also been, you know, posting on Instagram about the fact that we only moved to this house two years ago. It was built in the seventies and, you know, I move my air quality monitor around with me and I'm like, you know, this space that I've set up as my office. I'm like, I'm feeling, flow. yep. I'm feeling really sleepy. <laughs> I'm feeling really yep. sleepy right now. It's like CO2? Oh, CO2 is a little high. And so it's like I could crack a window, but I know to check those things, right? The general yep. public doesn't, you know, they don't, they don't know to check those things. And so it's like, Oh, you know, talking to people without getting super technical, like, oh, if you're feeling a little sleepy in the afternoon, like maybe, maybe we'll get you an air quality monitor and, you know, just crack a window or, you know, if you're doing a larger scale project, like now's the time we really need to talk about ventilation because this is, <laughs> this is huge. Um, so it's been, it's been interesting uh, for sure. When I designed this uh, space that I'm in right now, five or six years ago, I had then just then been doing a few video interviews and that. And so I actually said, okay, I'm going to design this for video. So I'm going to have my face looking at the window, which you're not supposed to do to have the window behind your screen, but it gives you the best natural lighting. And I'm going to do the neutral plywood background there. And I hate drywall. So that's why the exposed block is here, which I should have used an architectural block. It looks like I'm in a basement, which I am, but, um, you know, now I realize I did this wrong. I should have, uh, you know, set it all up with my bookcase behind and all of that because everybody's got bookcases behind them with carefully curated books. But um, you know, I was thinking then. I work from home. I've always I've worked from home for fifteen years. But if I was going to set the perfect home office, what I was thinking about at the time was video. And that's how I ended up with the, with the situation that I have. And whenever anybody asks me now, well, what do you need for a home office? I say, think about what people are going to be seeing through your computer screen. Where is the light, the best light coming from? And what is the best background? And do it that way. 
as you can see, my light is coming from this side. So I have a big right. window kind of over here to this side, but my, my office doesn't set up for me to, to be in the, any other direction than this. And for right. a while I had a green screen, um, which at least that's the really nice thing about the technology now is I can set my background yeah. so I could turn my background on. So you wouldn't see that, but I make sure that what you can see back here is usually pretty well organized neat. and it's not neat you know, and tidy. Not, it's not too because I did that at first and I was like whoa what's back there like what what can people see you know uh, um so and I'm I love books but uh, as I continue to collect them I've been trying to share them so that right. I don't have you know the extensive collection because then I think okay is that just like collecting dust is that just a thing I have to dust and because this is an existing house, it's probably never going to get as tight as I'd like it to. But right. we, we bought it for its location and for its layout. And I said, I can work with that for sure. And so we'll slowly, you know, start start working through all of it. But um, I see two ozone generating machines behind you. There. Is that a big laser printer? It, it's a plotter, yes. A plot. Oh, the plotter is, a, uh, the, uh, it's an inkjet plotter. Mm-hmm. That's fine, but over there is a big photocopier uh, printer. It's actually an inkjet printer too. Oh, okay, inkjet's fine. I just every yep. time this is this is the thing. I mean, if you look at uh, the standards for offices, you've got to have your photocopiers, anything like that, in a separate room with mm -hmm. proper ventilation because they generate ozone. And this is the problem with a lot of home offices: is that people just go and they buy the cheap laser printer and they surround themselves with equipment that is constantly pumping out ozone yes yeah, so no, i have two ink jets old school in that way i'm like i'm not upgrading to laser what's that doing it's like melting stuff onto the paper that seems like a bad yeah. idea <laughs> yes exactly so and i mean i can't say that all of our choices are good we have a gas range here um that is gonna go but it needs to move the location of the stove needs to move because I want to get an induction. I already have a wall oven um, that needs to get installed. And so I need an induction cook top, not an actual inset. And right. so, so you've got to rework the kitchen. So it needs to move its location, but it's been a terrible stove that my idea of, of dealing with it is to just not cook with it. <laughs> So we have an induction. Well, I honestly have an induction burner that I use more than anything else. And I just plug in the little, you know, the little burner and use that. I have one too. Yeah. Because I just, I, the gas, it's just, it's just not even something I want to deal with. And it's terrible anyway. Like it's not even a good stove. So you don't even feel encouraged to use it. So, well, well, I bought the induction, the Telrita induction range front top from Ikea because I wanted to a test it and I wanted my wife to use it and get used to induction. And the problem is we have exactly one pot in the entire house that's magnetic that actually works on it, which I was reading recently is one of the big things that keeps people from going induction because they not only have to buy a new stove, but they have to buy about a thousand dollars worth of pots when they add up all of the pots and pans that they have right now and that that is this and people love their pots a lot of them but our lacrosette our big heavy lacrosette works and that's it yeah we um the was in the last house that i did at the five lot subdivision but the one before that um the stove that she bought she actually bought a really nice stove came with a set of cookware which i was like oh. That's what they should do. Just like they should all come with the range hood. They the should all range hood, they should come with, come with a cookware. set of cookware. You know, it doesn't have to be fancy. It can be, you know, one of each of the different shapes or sizes that you need, but yes. it came with a set of cookware and it made it really easy for her to make that decision to, to go that way. I mean, she was already planning to do it anyway, but it was really nice because then, then she didn't have to feel as bad about the fact that half of the cookware that she had previously owned. Cause you know, sometimes you own nice cookware, but uh, she could get rid of that. And she's like, I'm not sorry. I did this at all. Like I love it. And that's a really brilliant idea because cookware is often so overpriced and expensive buying it pot by pot. But if like a stove manufacturer goes in and buys a lot of a couple of thousand can probably get really nice stuff for not much money. Right. It's a very good idea. 
it's a great marketing scheme for people who want to start pushing induction. And obviously we all think that they should be doing that anyway. Right. And I think more chefs are starting to talk about it and like it. And that's helping because you get the people who are, who are big cookers, right? So they love to cook and they're like, have to have gas. And I'm like, yeah, but a lot of people are talking about how easy it is to actually moderate what you're cooking with an induction range versus, you know, playing with it with the gas. So when I was in Portland, the one time I've been there a couple of years ago, uh, the fanciest restaurant in town with this really weird food, I can't remember the name of it, but they were in an old building, warehousey building that they couldn't get an exhaust in. And, you know, I was shocked at sort of the nicest restaurant in town. They, they all were working in the restaurant on induction. And I've talked to since then to a restaurant in Toronto is doing it and say they didn't start out of choice. They thought, oh, this is never going to work, but they couldn't afford the exhaust system or couldn't put it in and got permission to do it with induction. And then they find they really like it. Yeah. So, you know, again, these are all things, you know, the attachment, it's all back to emotions. The attachment to the gas stove that my wife has is entirely emotional. She feels that's what I need to cook this way. And you can show the statistics, which I do. Look, this warms up faster and you've got more control. I said, no, it'll never work. It'll never work. They've got an emotional attachment to that blue flame. So this is, I think, you know, especially in Passive House, it was a real problem when it started because all the architects who went into it were data nerds. You know, they loved the number munching and the spreadsheet munching more than they loved architecture, which is why you've got so many really ugly Passive Houses. And um, it's so just... true. <laughs> there are some really ugly ones. Yeah, but now, you know, you get architects who could both like go logic people in Maine, you know, where they can just, they have such an eye for making this box with not such big windows. And that just looks so beautiful because they have a sense of proportion as well as a real understanding of, uh, of passive house building. And, but it's taken like 20 years for North American architects to get to that stage where they can both design a building that looks good and that works well. We are uh, a very resistant crowd for some reason. Um, I'm not entirely sure I understand what a lot of the resistance is, but it's also, you know, not just to the passive house level, but it's really, um, it's really disturbing how few people in the United States even understand you know, building science in general, just, just, oh, yeah. just good building science, like not even talking about making it better than it should be just the science behind what they just built. And that, that's a little scary, you know, to think it's totally about. scary, totally. So. But you know, I'm teaching fourth year, third and fourth year design students at Ryerson University, and they don't get a course in it. They don't get a course in sustainable design until an option that I'm teaching in third year, that's crazy. It should be required at first year, you know, right in there. And when I went to school, they didn't teach any of that. You know, you'll learn that when you're out in practice or whatever. And it's a real failure. And there's a, in sort of getting low carbon and healthy design right into the schools, right in first year. I mean, it's, it's fundamental. I think, with a lot of the climate action stuff and the climate striking that we've seen recently, I'm hoping that it's come into an even younger crowd so that when they get to college, they're still demanding it, you know, so that we're getting buy-in from the young kids in, you know, elementary school and middle school, high school, till you get to college, if you're at all interested in architecture, the trades, engineering, that it's going to be second nature for you to be like, we're not doing this why are we not doing this? This doesn't make sense, you know? And so hopefully, because like you said, the, talk about it emotionally, they hear about that at school and then they go home and they talk right. to their parents and they're like super emotional about it because that's the position that they're in. And that's probably how we have to treat everybody else is this emotional aspect of it. Because right. the science and the technical stuff is really interesting to those of us who are you know, deep down in the, in the weeds nerds. 
And right. occasionally you'll get a client who is like that, wants to understand. But those aren't the general number of people that we need to get to to make a really big impact. So, yeah. The USGBC, the US Green Building Council, opened up, did a survey. They've tried to change the market and they did this survey of people to find out what people know about and care about uh, when it comes to environmental concerns about buildings and that. And the number one thing that everybody said, what's the greenest thing that anyone can do was recycling. I mean, they just have this thing when you did all the survey, they said, oh, I'm really, I'm really green-minded, I recycle everything. And I said, oh my God, the years of training by the single-use plastic industry and the whole fast food industry that recycling is holy, uh, when instead recycling is a complete, complete fraud that was designed specifically to permit the growth of fast food and single-use plastic and disposable bottles and beer cans. Uh, it was just training us to throw things away. And then in the 70s, when the dumps were all getting full, they realized, and the cities were saying, we want to put deposits on everything. They said, oh, no, we'll solve this by recycling it all. And so they invented it just so they could keep selling us single-use crap. So, <clears throat> and if you say you don't want to do it anymore, it's fundamentally such a problem, you know, our, our kitchens don't have the pantry space to have the bottles and stuff, and the restaurants don't exist. Everything is fast food. Um, you have to change the whole culture, the whole way of thinking about sustainability. You know, I want the day that those kids that you talk about come home from school and they're embarrassed to get into their dad's F-150. You know, everybody's driving a pickup truck and nobody should be driving a pickup truck unless you happen to be a contractor and need a pickup truck. And um, it should be embarrassing to get into one. And yet we're in a culture where 75% of the vehicles that are sold today are giant SUVs and pickup trucks. And I don't know how we change that. And they're driving all the big houses in the suburbs, you know. Yeah, I mean, we really missed the mark on not doing public transportation and being able to get around in the places. And, and you know, you look at some of the cities, like you look at Boston and they just said they have too many cars, they can't handle yeah. it. And then it's traffic and then we're widening streets and then we're eliminating parking. And then we're doing away with the street shops because now there's no parking next to the street shops and we're too lazy to walk from the parking garage to the street. Yes. Shop. You know, it's like we've created this like cyclical monster of, you know, what it is. And, you know, I live in a somewhat rural community on the coast, but I also, my husband drives three miles to work and I work from home. So we're not going right. to, we do have a truck because we have to take our garbage to the dump. We have to yes. take it to the dump. Um, but the truck we found out does not get run often enough. And then it's very angry. <laughs> because oh, dear. it goes like three miles to the dump and that's it. And so it's got like a couple miles on it. We have a small car. We actually have a Tesla. So we have a small electric vehicle that that is what we drive. Wherever we go, anywhere, right. we drive the electric car. And so um, it's been, you know, it's it, and one thing, it, like we have to make things easy for people too, right? So the whole recycling scam or whatever, but um, food waste in the waste stream is a huge issue for landfills. And so there's this place up here that did this compost thing. They'll give you a five gallon bucket. They'll first A, drop it off at your house and B, they'll pick it up. So you can do it once a week, once every other week or once a month and they drop it off and pick it up to you. All you literally have to do is put the food waste in the bucket and put it out on the drop-off day. And then they'll bring you a bucket of compost in, you know, oh, they'll bring, I was going to say, what do they do with it? They turn it into compost and they, bring it back up. They compost it. If you don't want the compost, so, so say you live in an apartment or you live in a, you know, small thing and you don't need the compost, they donate the compost to the local community. So basically they just take all of the food scraps and they compost it and they work with the festivals and they compost all the food from the festivals and stuff. And I mean, they, they partnered with a local farmer. So it's actually the local farmer that's going out there with his big 
machinery and flipping over the 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 stuff and like they're just they made it easy they made it so it's almost like you said about the kids climbing into the pickup trucks it's like almost embarrassing if you don't do it because it's so easy you know so um it's it's pretty exciting what people could come up with with ideas to make a difference that you just i don't know I hope we can so what that. haven't we talked about? What else would you like to talk about or um, edit some of these? I know you wrote a bunch of healthy, healthy house series. So hopefully people will go and read um, those. You talked about building design and interior design as it related to COVID. Um, do you well, have yeah, let's, well, we talked a little bit about that before, about how one of the, the house plans were going to change because sure. uh, we're going to get home offices and sort of the open plan isn't going to be as big a deal as it used to be. And, you know, I, again, when I go back to kitchen design, I did an article recently where I'm just showing these pictures of people with their notebook computers on their kitchen counters and they're working and actually some of them eating while they're working on their computer. And I just think, well, that's one way to ruin your computer, fill it with crumbs. But, you know, another thing also is that kitchen counters should be clean. They should be sanitary. They shouldn't be where you're doing homework and where you're doing your housework. A kitchen should be a special place, especially in an era of pandemics and in a possible era of antibiotic resistance coming up, a place that you can really clean easily. So you should have the storage to get everything off the counter so you can just go wipe everything down. And uh, what I see is that kitchens becoming like the office, the school, everything is sort of on the kitchen counter and on the kitchen island and kitchen islands doing everything, they're becoming kitchen continents, they're getting so big. And um, it's, it's, I think, fundamentally backwards. The kitchen is one place. I keep going back to that wonderful Frankfurt kitchen that was designed to be tiny and efficient. This uh, woman, uh, Greta Schultz, I can't remember her last name, I'm embarrassed because I write about her so much. And she actually said the reason she wanted the kitchen separate is that she didn't want women trapped in the same space all the time. They should go out and be able to read a book or go out in the town or something. And so the kitchen was designed as a machine to get in and out of as quickly as possible, which is again, the contradiction of, oh, the kitchen is the big social area where you raise the kids and where people are coming in and party time and all of that and hanging out. No, she thought it should be a machine to get so that people aren't trapped in it. There was a huge reaction against this. And in the 50s, of course, it completely changed because women were kicked out of the factories and told to go home and raise kids. And so that's when you got the big kitchen, which was the woman's domain. And uh, I got in huge trouble when I wrote a long post about kitchen design really being all about sexual politics. And People told me, you know, I should go get drunk or go get laid was a comment I got, you know, that I didn't know what I was talking about. But it, uh, it, it really, when you start looking at the history of why the kitchen is the way it is, it is all about uh, the roles that people are supposed to play in life. And so the kitchen started out, it was away and it was small. If you go to something like a Frank Lloyd Wright house, the kitchen is tiny and it's in the back because everybody had servants. And then when servants went away, they had to figure out how to do it all over. And then when the 50s came, they had to figure, and they wanted to reset the family back to where the wife is in the kitchen raising the kids, they had to reset it all again. Well, it's time for a 21st century reset where we look at, you know, what is the healthiest and safest way to do this? Uh, What is the most efficient way to do this? How are people eating now? Are they actually cooking for real? Or are they just, what you're seeing now is this thing called a messy kitchen that started coming out in luxury houses where there's the big show kitchen where the guy comes and does a weekend meal. But what's really going on is everybody's sort of in that back little messy kitchen, popping egos into the toaster and uh, pressing the button on the Keurig uh, to get the coffee and a whole row of little machines. Oh, and the microwave and the place where you put the plastic containers from the DoorDash. So the reality 
of how people are cooking and the big show kitchens with the big islands and the big hoods are completely separate to the point where they're even doing separate kitchens for it, these messy kitchens. And um, I think we've got to figure this one out. And I think you can go through every room and talk about the same thing. I mean, the worst room, the worst designed thing in the entire house is the bathroom. You know, from a health point of view, it's a complete disaster. They used to have to have windows. And then post Second World War, the engineers said, oh, let's put in these bathroom fans. And then they can be in the middle of the house and they don't need windows. But like you said, nobody turns on the bathroom fan because they're noisy and nobody likes using them. And so you've got this room with a toilet that every time you flush the toilet, it's six fecal coliform bacteria into the air, landing on your toothbrush five feet away. And, you know, you put people, you open the cabinet doors and there's like cosmetics and nail polishes and, and uh, hair, nobody uses hairspray anymore, which was the worst, but like just toxic waste, a cabinet of toxic waste in there in the same room with no ventilation and a toilet. And you go into the shower, the tub shower combination, which is a thing designed for death. You know, let's take soapy water and a curvy metal surface and turn on the shower and see how many people can survive that. You get an American dying every day because they slip in the shower. And the latest trend, the one that absolutely makes me completely insane, are all the new freestanding bathtubs with the really thin walls. If you look in any magazine now, all you've got are those freestanding bathtubs that with the thin, thin walls because they figured out how to engineer them, engineer them. And when you get older, how do you get into a tub? You sit in this ledge of it and you swing your legs over. That's what people have done since there were bathtubs. So what is everybody buying? They're buying tubs with a one inch ledge. You can't do it. You cannot get into it without stepping over the whole thing and getting in and then going slipping. And if you want to put in a grab rail, you can't because there's no wall to put the grab rail on. It's freestanding out there. This is, again, where nobody's thinking about the functions of these things. They're just thinking about how does this look? And these freestanding tubs, you almost can't buy anything else right now. They're so popular. And every one of them is a functional and safety disaster. And yet, you know, and this is the fundamental problem that we have when people fall in love with the image of something and you can't you know, really, you don't want to do this. If you want a bathtub, we'll get you a really nice, comfortable bathtub. I learned this from my mother who was an interior designer that I'd go with her as a kid when she was in the showroom. And even though she was all dressed up, she would take off her shoes and climb into the bathtub and lie in the bathtub in the middle of the showroom. And once they threw her out and said she couldn't do it. And she said, fine, I'll never shop here again. But, you know, was very silly, but she was a short woman with short clients. And she said, I'm going in that tub and I'm going to see how it fits because that's what you want a tub for is comfort. And I've been doing that all my life. I want to buy a bathtub. I go lie in it. I and tell all of very... my clients to do that. <laughs> oh, you do? And do they? I do. I do. Oh, good, I don't know good. if they all do. Some of them do. Um, definitely my office partner went and sat in a bunch of tubs because I was like, you got to find one that's comfortable. Like this is how much space you have, but you got to go sit in it. Cause she's actually has the opposite problem. She's tall. Right. And right. so I'm oh, like, it's gotta, be, it's gotta be comfortable for you. And she actually bought a totally different tub than she thought she was going to. She had one that she had picked out that she thought was going to be great. And she went and she sat in it and she was like, it was uncomfortable. It was terrible. I never would have used it. And so, um, you know, and back to the tub shower thing too, is, you know, how many, if you don't have kids, who's using the tub, right? Right. And do you, unless you're really good and you scrub your tub a lot, who wants to, to take a bath in the shower that you stand in all the time, right? Well, yeah, I, mean, I don't think, and I don't think combination tub shower should actually be allowed again, because they're so dangerous, right. you know, the round bottom and the soap and everything, uh, they should be either have a shower if you don't have room for both or have a separate stall shower and a tub. I mean, I think it's just logical. And I don't think the toilet should ever be in the same room as everything else. It should be in its own separate room, which is what I've always done and what I have now. And everybody should have a bidet toilet seat because they're wonderful. <laughs> I, mean, I wrote a great controversial post. Uh, 
I bought a $1,200 toilet seat and so should you. And people got so mad. You bought a $1,200 toilet seat? Are you crazy? And it's the best thing I ever bought. I worked, um, I did a design for a nurse and she is like, she actually had a separate bidet, uh, you know, and not just this, the toilet seat. Um, and she right. was like, no, this is important. We have to have one. And I was like, wow, you're the first person who's ever, you know, asked for one, like very specifically said this bathroom has to fit, you know, the, the, and they had a toilet room with these two fixtures in it. And that was it, you know? Well, like, yeah. All right, got it. You know, it was, I couldn't, uh, you know, she was like, I'm a nurse. Here's why, you know, and here's I, I why, you know. So, but, right. well, I appreciate all of your time. I know you're busy. You've got a lot of things going on. I should probably just start a like once a month with Lloyd uh, <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I'd be thrilled. I hope you got enough there to edit down. That's why I thought I'd get in the end, get back into the bathroom there. I do. I do. I have more than enough. So this is perfect. Um, and I, and I appreciate you, you taking the time and I love how passionate you are about things and how you explain it. And I think, um, probably most of the people who listen to my podcast already know who you are, but if they don't, then hopefully they're all going over to tree hugger to see all, the, all of the controversial articles. Cause let's be honest, they're all going to go look for the ones that you mentioned. Are controversial. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guests, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out emily at matramarch.com. You can find me on Instagram, matramarch, or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.